I tried to identify what I thought were the four most pernicious legacy burdens that really do organize the laws of this country and the, the leadership of this country. And for me, it's um, racism, patriarchy, individualism, and materialism. And my sense is that until we can change some of that and help particularly leaders recognize that they're being driven by these belief systems and that those belief systems do take us off the cliff, uh, we can lobby for changes in laws and so on, but the big shift won't happen. The big shift for me is unloading a lot of those beliefs and emotions and having more self-leadership at the top levels of our organiz of our country. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops that are grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from family therapist Dick Schwartz. He's the founder of IFS, known as Internal Family Systems. Dick has fostered the idea that human psyches are made up of various parts that all need love, support, and attention from our true selves and from one another. And because he has extended his model to cover leadership roles, Dave sat down with Dick to try and learn more about how his thinking could help movements like the Real Organic Project to succeed and uh, spread and create positive change. I think you'll really enjoy this one. It's a little different. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. And uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to be talking with Dick Schwartz today. Um, thank you, Dick. It's we managed to wedge this into a workshop that that I'm attending with you. So Dick has uh, been a longtime therapist and is the founder of Internal Family Systems, which is a a model of psychotherapy. I've gotten to study because my wife is a therapist, and uh, it's been uh, really uh, important and valuable to me, uh, not just as a human being. Most importantly, for that but also as I've struggled to understand the ramifications of this and things like how I manage a business. And, and we'll talk about that, but I'd like, uh, if you could, to start out with a little explanation of what Internal Family S Systems is and how you came to it. Sure, and great to be with you, Dave, and so glad you're in the community now. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna go back in time 40 years because I'm pretty old now. And uh, I was a young family therapist who uh, thought family therapy was the bomb and these other ways of working with part with what I now call parts, but working inside people were not necessary because we could change all that by reorganizing families. Then an outcome study in the early 80s to try and prove that and found that prophecies failed. And the clients I was working with who had a condition called bulimia didn't respond to <clears throat> straight family therapy. So out of frustration, we got asking why, and they started talking this language of 
parts. And they would say, there's a part of me that when something bad happens, just turns into this horrible critic and attacks me inside. And that brings up a part that feels worthless and young and empty and alone. And that's so distressing that a binge part comes in and takes me out. And that's some relief. But then the critic attacks me for the binge and calls me fat too. And that brings back that same lone, empty, worthless feeling. So the binge has to come back. And as a family therapist, this is, sounded familiar. It was like the sequences of interaction I was studying in families. And at first I was disturbed because they talked about these parts as if they were little personalities who had autonomy and could make them do things they didn't want to do and had relationships with each other. I thought, maybe these kids are sicker than I thought until I noticed them in my mind, too. <laughs> I've got them, too. And some of them are as extreme as theirs. So then I calmed down and, <clears throat> long story short, began trying to get my clients to interact and learn about these parts rather than just witness them. And uh, in the process, learned that they're all valuable. Uh, even the ones like the critic or the, the binge part, that they're just trying to help the client. They're trying to protect in some form <clears throat> other parts that, that are stuck in the past and, and carry what we call burdens, which are extreme beliefs and emotions that came into your system during a trauma or some kind of bad parenting experience as a child and then attach to these parts and drive the way they operate. So, yeah, it turns out now after all these 40 years, I can safely say that, number one, we're all multiple personalities in a sense, that we all have these, what I call parts, other systems call ego states or uh, sub-personalities, that <clears throat> it's actually a good thing because one mind couldn't do everything we have to simultaneously. So we, we have them when they're not burdened, when they're not frozen in time, when they're, when they're doing what they're designed to do, they're all very valuable. And they work together and they help us feel like a whole person. But, like we said, trauma and parenting, parenting experiences or getting bullied in school or rejected by somebody injects these extreme beliefs and emotions into our system. And some of these parts are young and innocent before they get hurt. They're the parts we love so much because they give us a lot of joy and playfulness and creativity. But they're also the most sensitive parts of us. So they take in the sense of worthlessness or the terror from some kind of trauma or <clears throat> the emotional pain of being hurt or rejected. And now they carry that and they're stuck in those scenes. And now they have the power to overwhelm us with those feelings. So we tend to, and everybody around us tells us to, lock them away inside and just don't look back, just move on, don't think about it anymore. And in the process then we are exiling these parts who were so wonderful before they got hurt, just because they got hurt. So they become what I call the exiles. And when you have a lot of exiles, 
you feel more delicate, the world seems more dangerous. So many things could trigger them, and if they get triggered, they do have the power to overwhelm us. It's like flames of emotion come bursting out of our gut or wherever they're stored and can just take us out. And so other parts are forced out of their naturally valuable states to become protectors and do their best to keep those exiles contained, keep the world from touching them. And some of them will try to do that by managing our relationships so no one gets close enough to hurt us or managing our appearance so that we look perfect and never get rejected or managing our <clears throat> performance so that we get a lot of accolades to counter the worthlessness, taking care of everybody, not letting ourselves take care of ourselves so that everybody depends on us or likes us or so on and so on. So there's a lot of what we call manager roles, which is one class of protector. Uh, and a lot of those parts we think of as ourselves or our ego because they're just working all the time. Some, some of them are scanning for danger, some of them are keeping us out of our body a little bit so we don't feel much, keeping us in our head. So there's a lot of manager roles. Again, it's not the nature of the part, it's the role it was forced into. Just like in a family, kids are forced out of their naturally valuable states into roles in the family. <clears throat> Despite the best efforts of these managers, we still get triggered. And when that happens, again, these flames come rushing out. So there's another set of parts who go into action immediately to counter that and try and deal with that emergency. So they'll, they're the parts that will give us these addictive impulses or try to get us higher than the flames or douse them with some substance or find a way to distract us until it burns itself out. And so we call those firefighters. They're fighting those fires so that we can get over that episode of triggering. And so that's the map of the territory. It's pretty simple. Protectors trying to contain and protect these very vulnerable exiles. And um, most of us come out of our families with a bunch of exiles and need a bunch of protectors. And that's basically how we live. Now, the big discovery of IFS was that as I was exploring all this and trying to have people get to know these parts and actually um, ultimately appreciate them, I would try to have them have set up these dialogues, just like I would in an external family. Maybe have a person talk to their critic, let's say. Just like in a family, I'd have a teenage kid talk to her critical mother and try to see how they might get along better. And I'd be doing that maybe with you, Dave, and your critic, and I'd say, okay, how do you feel toward the critic? And suddenly you're furious with it. And it reminded me of family sessions where I might have two family members talk to each other and a third one jumps in and screws everything up. So I'd say, Dave, could you find the one who's so angry at the critic and could you get it just to give us a break for a little while and relax back in there? And people could do it. And once they did, it would like they'd turn into a different person. Uh, seconds earlier, they hated it, the critic. Now they're just curious about 
why does it do this to me? And even sometimes have compassion for it. So they would become suddenly calm and have confidence relative to it, have pure curiosity about it, and have compassion. And in that state, the critic would relax and would share its secret history of how it got forced into that role and what it's trying to protect. And once we learn that, then we could negotiate permission to go to what it protects, like maybe a part of you that carries a lot of emotional pain. And there's a process by which we could actually get that part out of where it's stuck in the past, help it unburden the emotions and beliefs it carries, and it would naturally, immediately transform into its naturally valuable states. And then we could bring the critic in to see it doesn't have to be so hard on you anymore because it doesn't have to protect this one anymore. And so all that was, you know, I still consider myself a scientist. So it was all, this was the data. I was just doing trial and error and experiments inside of people. And um, this is what I've learned. And, and this map and this, uh, what I call the self, which I didn't quite explain. So as I was getting these parts to open space in other clients, it was like the same person would pop out with those same C-word qualities. Calm, confidence, curiosity, compassion, and then also courage, clarity, creativity, and connectedness. And when I would ask clients, what part of you is that? That's great. Let's keep that around. They'd say, that's not a part like these others. That's me. That's myself. So I came to call that The Self with a capital S. And it turns out now, again, 40 years later, thousands of people using this all over the world, that's in everybody, can't be damaged, knows how to heal, and is just beneath the surface of these parts such that when they open space, it pops out spontaneously and sort of takes over the session and begins to relate in a harmonious way, to both internally and externally. And that's the big deal about IFS that, that that's not only that it's in there, but it can be accessed so quickly and, and that it can be set to work. Not, so not just accessed and become a passive witness or observer, but become an active leader in the inner world. And I know that's an interest of yours, um, how to bring better leadership to organizations and, and so on. That's right. That's right. You know, as, as I'm listening to you, I, I you could be describing the microbiome or you could be describing a healthy soil. In both cases, there's this enormous diversity of beings. I mean, in the microbiome, apparently the majority of us does not have our DNA. And uh, there's so much living in us that that isn't Dave or Dick. It's other stuff without which we cannot survive. Huh. And uh, a healthy microbiome uh, enhances that diversity and it become, it's very self-supporting. And, and, and that's, of course, in organic farming, that's what, what we try to do is to uh, encourage and protect that biodiversity in the soil because there's so much living there. And it's our belief that if we can uh, steward that, we don't control it. But if we can protect it and allow it, it's, it's natural expression that we benefit as, as 
the people who who live off of the the food provided by that soil. Wow. So it's it's it's, it's just fascinating, it's fascinating to me, Dick. Parallel. That, that yeah. uh, I go, God, is everything the same? It would appear well, so. It does appear to me yeah, so. Yeah, and I know that that in the world of psychotherapy, IFS is uh, a radical approach because it doesn't pathologize these parts of people. It it accepts that they can be in very misguided, right? And they're they're doing stuff that might be destructive. You know, one thing you said is that we we actually think of ourselves as our managers, but I, I I know that you would also say that we actually think of ourselves as whichever part we're really blended with. That's right. Yeah. So it might be the firefighter that we go, this is the real me, the yeah. one that's having a drink. That's right. That's who I really am if people only knew, and I hope they never find out. Right. And, uh, you know, we have all these things that we identify with. Or, or this exile that feels so worthless. Or the, the exile. I've got to hide that all the time. This is who I really am. If people that's found right. out, that's right. it would be horrible. Yeah. So uh, I have done I have done many hours of workshops with you and with other other teachers in this, and I have greatly appreciated it. I, it's been of real value to my life. But let's let's go to the part where we take this and see, is it connected when we start to work in the external world? And I've talked with you in the past about leadership. And uh, let's start small, which is, say, with a business that you might manage, and then we'll step up to citizenship. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so with, with a, in a business, how would you think of, what are the lessons from internal family systems that, that we can take to working with other people? Yeah, so that's a big interest of mine now not just to bring it to leadership in business, but um, to bring this framework that started out as a psychotherapy to the culture and to, uh, you know, I work with a lot of social activists now, so they do their activism from what I call self rather than from their righteous parts and work with their fear about what they're doing and um, work with uh, the psychedelic world to try and use this as a map to that territory and and we're starting training programs for for executive coaching uh, to try and bring it to CEOs of corporations and so on because most people who get to that level did it because they're they're dependent on a big striving part that uh, is looking at the bottom line and is constantly trying to make more money or for the shock stockholders or uh, trying to compete with everybody around them. And that works to climb the ladder, but once you get to the top, which I found myself actually, because to create this model, not create it, but to discover this model and then to bring it to the world, I had to rely on these very striving parts of me that didn't really care that much about what people thought and so didn't care much about people. And so I could be attacked and it wouldn't uh, wipe me out. And then I found myself the leader of a community and those same parts didn't work. And I was fortunate to have people who would confront me about it and just say, this is tearing us all apart. If you don't do something to change, this isn't going to work for us. And to my, what I'm proudest of, I think, is that I took that seriously, and I, because I de developed this model, I had the tool with which to actually heal the parts that were driving all of this and become more of a self-led leader, 
And now having done that, uh, there's just a totally different atmosphere in my company and in our community, which is quite large now, with the, all the trainers and all the students. And um, there's this, what we call self-energy that permeates an organization once particularly the leader gets self-led because self is contagious. And so I'm using myself as an example, but that's what I'm trying to bring to companies, that sense of uh, lack of agenda for the leader, a, a sense of listening to what's happening and caring about the people around them. And all of that, those are all part of those C-word qualities of self. It's inherent in us. They just get covered over by the parts that had to, to climb the ladder. So once that starts to permeate a company and people really feel cared for, uh, it, it's a whole different atmosphere. And as we talked about, it can be very hard to survive in this very competitive com capitalistic culture. Right, right. That's, that's the question is, uh, have we been reduced to the quick and the dead? Mm -hmm. and, and that if you're not quick, uh, you, you, won't, you won't survive. Uh, before we go there, I just want to ask, could you give an example of a, an instance in which you or someone um, brought the, the lessons of IFS? It doesn't have to be that they literally said, oh, I learned this night, but brought that perspective to a, a, a small business situation and uh, the situation was transformed as a result? Well, just the framework, for example, of understanding that people are not the parts that dominate them and the ability to kind of see behind those parts and not take the bait because people will come often if they're upset in, in an extreme way. And that will trigger, as the leader, a protector part in you, and then you'll have a parts war between you and your employee, maybe. And that just escalates to the point of often dissolving the relationship. But if you can stay in self, it's like you have x-ray vision, and you can see past the protector of your adversary, and you can see the exiles that are driving that person, and you can stay compassionate. Now, you, you wouldn't necessarily just concede whatever the person's asking for, and you might stay pretty firm about your position, but you would do it in a very different way. You would do it in a, with a tone of compassion, and some of your words would would exude compassion. So I, I, I may do this exercise in our class today where I could have you think of a person who triggers you all the time, and then put that person in a room by themselves, and have them, as you look at them through the window, do whatever is triggering to you. And you would notice a big shift in your body, and you would notice your heart close immediately, and you would notice your muscles tense, tense, and and you would I would have you look at the person through those eyes, and they would look ugly or threatening. And then I would say, "You're not going into that room. You're gonna be okay." So 
ask that part who sees this person that way and has really taken over your body to just step back and relax for a few minutes. And you would feel this energy shift and your heart would open up and you would look at them a very different way. They would look like a, almost a different person. And you would, you would want to relate to them in a different way. And that's what I'm trying to bring. And that's just an example of someone yeah. who triggers you, but just to bring that kind of uh, leadership. Yeah, deep presence. Yeah. So uh, I, I, as I, I actually consciously uh, tried to bring those lessons to running my small farm. And one of the things I was a bit shocked by was how much I used um, fear and shame as management tools. And I, I am not um, a harsh, a harsh manager, but it, they were subtle. But I, I just noticed that, and I thought, well, there must be something. There must be a different way. But it's not always easy to find that. That's right. No, it's true. Again, we're so used to these manager parts of us that manage manage ourselves. That they they use fear and shame to get us to behave. And so they do the same with people around us. And because we're so used to them, we don't even notice that we're doing it often, which is what you're saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, th there's plenty to think about there. Let's try and take it up one more level. And I, I think of it as the level of citizenship. I think of it as the level in which, which we face these huge problems. Um, Al Gore, I think when I interviewed him, said, you know, it's important to change the light bulbs, but it's more important to change the laws. And I thought, well, there's truth to that, which is that some of the issues that we face, world peace, you know, uh, which are impossibly uh, complicated, nonetheless, uh, the responses have to be many people coming together to change change a law, to change perspective. Uh, another, we, we hosted a, a conversation between two uh, very prominent um, organic thinkers, and one was a black woman who has done amazing work kind of creating an alternative food system, and one was a white woman who has done amazing work in bringing education about food to many young people in the school system. And she was talking about the most important thing that she saw to create change was to share good food with other people. And the black woman said, you know, I don't think uh, sharing organic cupcakes is going to change the world the, the way I need it changed. We need to change the laws. We need to change the actual rules and regulations that create the power structure, that create my ability to buy a farm. So that's taking it one step. What do you think when you think of citizenship, when you think of how we deal with our collective challenges, as well as our personal challenges, the collective challenges those become personal, but when we're dealing with our collective challenges, how would you think about those differently from how you might have thought of them 40 years ago? Mm -hmm. One way is, uh, I hadn't mentioned this, but 
there is something we call legacy burdens, and uh, these are the beliefs and emotions that came into us from our ancestors, perhaps, might be related to traumas that happened cent centuries ago, or at least decades, and they trickle down through the generations and affect profoundly, often, our view of the world and the way we operate in the world. And uh, there are also what we call cultural legacy burdens. And so different cultures, depending on their trauma histories, different countries, depending on their trauma histories, and the, the people that invaded and, and, and what they carry will have different legacy burdens, cultural legacy burdens, and those legacy burdens will organize the way the country operates. And I tried to identify what I thought were the four most pernicious legacy burdens that really do organize the laws of this country and the, the leadership of this country. And for me, it's um, racism, patriarchy, individualism, and materialism. And my sense is that until we can change some of that and help particularly leaders recognize that they're being driven by these belief systems and that those belief systems do take us off the cliff, uh, we can lobby for changes in laws and so on, but the big shift won't happen. The big shift for me is unloading a lot of those beliefs and emotions and having more self-leadership at the top levels of our of our country. And that won't happen until there is a sense that this is a problem and that, and that these parts are running uh, people. And there's a motivation to actually collectively try and unload a lot of this. So I've become really interested in what we call collective unburdening. And I've collaborated with a guy named Thomas Hubel, who's done this in Israel with, with um, Palestinians and Jews. And because it's also my belief that these legacy burdens drive a lot of the conflicts in the world and uh, are just related to these terrible histories. So for me, it's all parallel. I've worked with so many survivors of extreme belief, of extreme abuse who have so many parts stuck in those abuse scenes that they're very extreme in the way they operate in the present and they see enemies everywhere. And that's true of also countries. It's all very parallel for me. Yeah. Okay, so as a citizen, you talked about working with activists who were trying to change that paradigm, those, those, uh, they're, they're so omnipresent, they're the air we breathe. Sure. It's, it's even hard to imagine realistically a different world. Yeah. We, we can, we can have dreams of those worlds, but it, it's elusive how, what the path might be. Yeah. How, how would you help them in their work? What, what would you say, um, that they might, think differently or, or, or do differently tomorrow from what they did yesterday? With these activists, you mean? Or? Yes, let's say with that, somebody who is actively trying to change uh, something. And, and, and I'll, I'll go so far as to say um, it's an activist 
whose vision of the future you might agree with because yeah, yeah. they're activists for very dark no that's dark true things. I, i'm only working with those kinds of activists right, right. And, uh you know so i if, if i were working with you i would say dave when you go to to try and change this thing what happens inside of you what do you say to yourself what do you feel how do you see the enemies and you would describe some of that and as you're describing it, you're telling me about the parts of you that are either interfering or are dominating your activism. And I would say, okay, you open to getting to know some of those parts and, and maybe helping them trust you, and by that I mean yourself, rather than feeling like they have to take over to deal with these people. Um, and. Most people are very open to that. They know the way they've been doing it doesn't work exactly. That's why they're coming to s for help. Uh, they just don't know how to change it because these parts are so automatically reactive. Um, and like you're saying, the fish are the last to know about water. They just, just assume that they need to take over in certain kinds of contexts. So I was working with somebody who's um, organized protests of pipelines and so on. And he was saying, as, as he taught people how to do it from a self-led place, it had a totally different impact. You know, the police would show up and they would work with their fear and would stay in self and have compassion for the police. And the police would not get so angry and, and uh, they would be chatting with each other and yeah, it was just a very different atmosphere. Yeah. Okay. So, stay in self if it's, if I, you know, I, I actually do, do try to do that before I get up and speak, if I have to speak at something, and it, it does change, change things quite a bit. Totally. Um, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, Forces that we deal with don't seem to actually, I, I said to you yesterday, there doesn't seem to be any there, there. there. There doesn't actually seem to be a person with the power to change them, including the person who so-called leads them. Uh, I have a friend, Fred Kirshenman, uh, a great organic pioneer, uh, now quite old, and he was speaking once and somebody called out and said, well, Fred, what would you do if you were Secretary of Agriculture? And he said, well, that all depends on how long I wanted to stay Secretary of Agriculture. I'm back, yeah. And that, that if he tried for the actual change he believed in, he would almost immediately be replaced. And because it's not, it really isn't about one person and making these decisions. It's this whole uh, ocean of forces that are forming that person. Yeah. I mean, your friend Al Gore found that out. Yes. You know? be a very different atmosphere had he won that election yes very different climate issue yeah yes so we we can see that there is such a thing as personal agency and it can happen that somebody gets in and and has that position of of leadership i'm just finishing war and peace mm -hmm. and tolstoy's whole perspective in that is that actually it doesn't matter and that we think that leaders are leading, 
And, and our whole story is about, well, Napoleon did this, but Napoleon had no more choice about what he was going to do than any, any soldier in the army, mm-hmm. and that we're, we're molded by these enormous waves that we don't understand. I don't, I don't know about that. It seems to me that there is a, such a thing as personal agency, and it does matter who gets elected mm-hmm. president, yeah. for example, even though each person is only the uh, kind of representation of a wave, of a huge wave, and these waves are colliding. Yeah. But I, I, I do see, I, I told you the story yesterday of Emmanuel Faber, who, who was the CEO of Danone for, I think, about four years. And the, the last year, they were losing money, and then he was gone. Yeah. And he was trying for, I believe, genuine change and inspiring change in how we think of our food system, what we actually are promoting for uh, each other to feed. So it is confusing to me uh, when, when we are confronted by that hideous strength, which we ourselves are co-creating. Yeah, again, I, I go back to these legacy burdens, which yeah. are invisible to most of us, and, um, and create these three-part systems that I'm talking about. So I could look at our, our country, the United States, and there are millions of exiles in our country now, economic exiles, who are living hand to mouth. And when there's that level of vulnerability in any system at any level, you can have very extreme protectors who will then polarize about what to do next. And that's what our government's in, involved in, in a kind of stalemated polarization that doesn't allow even the president to to make choices that are more self-led, or can make the choices, but won't, nothing will happen, which is to some degree where we are. And the thing that gives me hope is I've worked with individuals and couples and families where it just seems so, so um, hopeless because they were so dominated by protective parts and were so polarized with each other that, you know, how's this going to change at all? But as soon as I could get some of those protective parts to open a little space and self spontaneously will pop out, things change very quickly. And so that's my hope writ large for, for our country and for inter, uh, you know, the interactions among leaders of countries and, uh, that if we can just bring a little more self to these problems we face, they can change. Okay, I, I have made a new... Um, I've decided I'm going to be more uh, radically optimistic because I, I've, I feel that realistic pessimism is actually not helpful at the moment. Yeah. We, we need to... Um, it's not necessarily realistic. <laughs> it, it's not necessarily realistic, although it, it has a reasonably good chance of proving true. But, but the question is, if we, if we decide that we're going to go in a different direction, so how do we, how do we embrace that? How do we um, share that? Your, your work is a great deal about personal transformation. I mean, that's, that's the essence of, of therapy. And now you're taking it beyond that to approach cultural transformation 
I, I, I remember Guthrie once asked a question in, in a workshop, and he said, uh, he said, so do I understand it right that the, uh, I, I'm going to get his words wrong, but that, that the leadership of self, the re- healthy relationship of self to the parts is the North Star? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's, that's well said. Mm-hmm. And what do you think is the North Star of looking at it on a cultural level? I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm just trying to figure the leverage point out in terms of where to focus my energy and to, to, to bring this. Um, and again, I do believe it has to do with leaders and leadership and finding the right, uh, and it may not just be social activists, but to find the right people with the, the right amount of influence who are like we're also bringing it to schools and having kids start to learn that when they get scared to not try to lock away that that scared part but to go to it and love it up and when they have a tantrum or they get really angry to not hate the part that's taken over and gets a lot of shame from people but instead go to it with a lot of love and and calm it down yourself well, as generations grow up with that different way of relating to their parts, uh, ideally they'll be more self-led, and then that will translate into the kind of leadership you were talking about with that company. That that then uh, there's much less of a cutthroat, colla- I mean, competitive atmosphere, and more of a collaborative atmosphere among companies and then among uh, countries. So, yeah, it's still kind of obscure to me how it's supposed to happen. All I know is, you know, I'm one one person trying to bring some change among many people and that all I know to do is just to keep keep on keeping on. It, it occurs to me that and, and, and you're describing self-leadership and self-leadership and self-leadership that you work with influencers uh, as well as, as just as ordinary citizens. And perhaps the aspiration or the, or the belief is that this becomes, um, well, I was going to say spreads like a virus. We're not, that's, that's not a very popular image anymore, but, <laughs> but that's the idea is that, the idea. that becomes there's viral, a, becomes right. a viral thing yeah. that we pay it forward over. Yeah. I mean, if one person ch- changes their relationship with those parts and actually finds some self leadership. And that we can also affect influential institutions. So there's a guy named Bill Isaacs, who's an executive coach, who's brought it to uh, the World Bank and to the IMF where where they were very polarized between the board and the administration and he's depolarizing and helping them start to make more self-led decisions rather than um, being so controlled by these vested interests that uh, by wealthy vested interests and uh, you know I don't know how much hope to hold about that but as it infects these kinds of institutions also. Um, it's not just the leaders, it's the institutions too. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I've encountered to a stunning degree is, is you know, what is called greenwashing, 
which is that I've seen the corporations are very good at intuiting where people's hearts are headed. And they go, well, that's where we're going to go. But they spend far more money on advertising that they're there than they do on actually changing anything. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great uh, competitive uh, decision. Strategy, yeah. Strategy, but it's, it, of course, it doesn't actually lead to, to change. Mm -hmm. it, it just leads to change of words. Mm -hmm. So the, the goal has to be to go deep, you know, to find a change deep enough that it isn't um yeah and what i'm saying is to get that strategic part to just be one of many who are giving some advice but are is being listened to by this self who has these other qualities who one of one of which is clarity and who sees clearly not only um injustices in the organization but sees clear the consequences of the continued uh, striving of, of the company on the planet and sees uh, you know, with clarity you can just you see the consequences and once you see the consequences then you start to act in a seriously different way there are parts that blind you to that and just just keep on trying and so when I'm working with an individual, uh, like maybe a philandering husband, and I help him separate from the, the parts that blind him and, and the parts that are only focused on more sex and have successfully ignored the consequences to his marriage all these years, there is a lot of grief at first and a lot of shame, but as we work with those parts and he becomes more self-led, he doesn't do it anymore. He sees what the damage he's doing and, and he's, his heart is much more open and then it all changes. So that's what I'm hoping at, at higher levels. Yeah. All right. Well, we, we should, and so you can start your next four-hour workshop. Do you have any any final thoughts you'd like to share, Dick? Just I love talking about these issues and, and with someone with your level of perception and perspective. Uh, so it's not that often that I get to share this larger vision. So I've really enjoyed it, Dave. Yeah, thank you. I always enjoy it. So, all right. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe and share the link with your friends. Please take the time today to leave us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening to so that others can find us. A video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org and by following our YouTube channel. Please join us next time when our guest will be Dave Mortensen, Chair of the Department of Agriculture, Nutrition, and Food Systems at the University of New Hampshire. Dave is a former professor of weed and applied plant ecology at Penn State College of Agricultural Sciences, and he's a former National Organic Standards Board member where we all got to know each other. Mm -hmm.